You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. What's up, people? Well, the time of the evening uh, where you join us on Legal Talk, Alhamdulillah, program uh, that has been uh, tailored for you to keep you conscientized on the world of legalities. And Alhamdulillah, someone that's uh, very popular with us and uh, someone that I look up to uh, with uh, much reverence and I embrace him and celebrate him. And he is, uh, I, I call him my Bhaijan. And uh, let's welcome uh, you and uh, uh, Senior Attorney Ashraf uh, Isub with a hearty Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, tell me, uh, Ashraf, how are you doing this fine, uh, beautiful evening? Alhamdulillah, and a hearty welcome to you and the listeners. Alhamdulillah, I'm well. Uh, no complaints. Shukar. It is a beautiful evening, as you say, in. Uh, Johannesburg, Friday the 25th of November 2022. We've survived another week with uh, lots of drama and lots of interesting happenings in the legal field, which we'll talk about uh, shortly. But Alhamdulillah, all good. And we hope the same for you and our dear audience. No, absolutely. As you said, a lot of drama, many things happening and so forth. And, you know, the drama of life is, you know, when we say, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun, from Allah we come and unto Allah shall we return. You know, there is uh, many talks about the COVID, the pandemic. And, you know, many of us have lost, uh, uh, you know, very close family members uh, during these times. Uh, your thoughts on that? You know, so many young people making parda from this dunya. Uh, Ashraf, you know, generally say, oh, the old people are going and this and that. But a lot of young people are making part of that. Perhaps a quick thought of yours and, uh, you know, you're a spiritual man. Uh, try and motivate uh, youngsters there that, you know, it's important to ask, uh, to connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now and not say, hey, you know, when I'm a bali, then I'll do all this. Ashraf, are your thoughts? So, yes, as you point out, there have been a number of um, fatalities. But that is the nature of life. When you die, when you are born, you inevitably have to expire on a particular date at a particular time, which is unknown to us. However, the wisdom of the elders is quite interesting. I think there's a hadith, I'm not sure, so I stand open to correction, that if you are planting the tree and the sign of Kiamat is coming, so let's say the Kiamat is, you know, you can see it rolling in front of you, then continue planting the tree. So, I mean, the wisdom of that is, you know, live your life fully every day. Um, obviously, the way we live our life is, as you've just mentioned, inna lillahi wa nilirajun, right? So that is a creed that we live by because that is, that is the solace we take uh, when loss happens. That is, you know, the, unique, the uniqueness of the Muslim is because he has the deen of Islam, which is the perfect deen. He's able to deal with all of these things, firstly by turning to his Lord, and secondly by saying Alhamdulillah for the condition. So we know that if you are dealing with a matter that requires patience, then they will tell you that there was a prophet, uh, Sayyidina Ayyub who was so patient with his disease that even when the worm that fell out of his uh, so he would place it back. So when it comes to patience, um, I don't think you'll have a greater picture of patience than our own beloved Nabi Sallallahu or his family. You see, the young daughter, she was removing the camel's entrails from his back while he was praying. I mean, that was patience. Even for her as a young child, to see the father Sallallahu abused in that manner, uh, even members of his family, Sayyidina Hamza, couldn't tolerate any abuse against the, the Prophet ﷺ. and defended him in the haram and he defended him with his life. So when it comes to taking lessons, whether you're young or old, middle age, whatever your, your circumstances, the deen has something for you to cling on to. It has an example. It has stories. I mean, the whole problem, the 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 whole uh, issue about the repetition of stories in the Quran is that it tells you over and over and over the same things. When it comes to speaking truth to power, again, that was an example of our dear Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But then you have Sayyidina Musa, who stood against Firon 
And Fir'aun was ferocious. I mean, we know what happened in that battle. In the end, Allah saved Sayyidina Musa from uh, the Pharaoh. When it comes to having um, uh, guidance for your, or your family members and asking them to do the right thing, you have Sayyidina Nuh before he got on and Sayyidina Lut when he besieged uh, the uh, evil of the day not to, to touch men, but if they wanted, he was prepared to give up his own daughters. So what I'm saying, yes, we have challenges, young, old, middle-aged, no getting away from it. Whether it be economic or spiritual or whatever, sicknesses, I mean, the thing that we have on Shafat, we hold on to hope. And then we say at the end, you know what, the realization, the leveling of the playing field is we came from Allah and we're going back to Him. And I think that's a very, very important uh, and very, very sobering uh, ayat of the Quran. Shafat. Ashraf, whilst you talk, you have a knack of uh, tickling my, uh, my mind. And I was just thinking, you know, a bit before that, that's so, you know, Hajj is given that dimension. You're going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In your profession, I'm thinking about a client. I knew you had a fought a case and he loses a case and uh, jail term is imminent. Uh, you know, what goes through the mind of that individual that knows, you know what, I'm going to be incarcerated. And also, you know, to add more uh, uh, spiritual dimension to that, Yusuf alayhi salam actually asking to go to jail. I mean, uh, talk to me about these dimensions, but uh, talk, first talk to me about, you know, what the uh, pro, uh, prisoner, I mean, a person that has been uh, sentenced, what does he feel? I'm going to be a prisoner and what's my life's coming to an end. What happens? And maybe how do you counsel them, uh, Ashraf? So, uh, Shafat, I don't do a lot of criminal work, but recently I was involved in two matters. So let me tell you even short-term incarceration if not in a prison but in the in a holding cell of, of a police station is quite devastating in this occasion my client was involved in a defensive action as a result of road rage but at the time he was trying to defend himself and he discharged his firearm so he was then taken into custody and the firearm was confiscated the matter is still going on but here's his first life experience, right? You, it is Juma. You are put into a holding cell. So you're not going to access your uh, prayer. Then you put into a holding cell with all different people. There are various criminals in there, some for you know legitimate reasons, others are not. So this is just before your bail application, right? Then uh, we even tried to offer him water and, 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 and the, and the uh, prison official said, no, no the, the police at the holding cell said, no, there was a man that was poisoned, so they're not prepared to give the prisoner anything to drink. So we opened the bottle and we said to them, okay, the wife will drink first and do you accept it? Then they allowed it, but no food. They said again, the prisoners were uh, poisoned, so they're not, so the, so the man then had to eat prison food for an entire weekend. Now, let me describe when the prison food comes. It comes like in a 20 liter, no, 50 liter uh, dustbin. You know the old rubber dustbins used to have? Mm. It's all slop. It is dished out in the most horrendous way. If it's bread, the guy is just stacking two or three slices into your dirty little plate and you're given some tea. I mean, it's really, really a great shock to the system. Now, th now that is people just awaiting bail, right? A long-term prison sentence is a nightmare because the prisons also are areas not necessarily for rehabilitation. It's well known, and there was a study conducted uh, on this, that um, there are prison gangs and that control. But I've also spoken to Muslim prisoners who say that because they are Muslim, they get the protection of other Muslim prisoners. Um, in the case that people that were half and things, 
they were able to have an impact on the other prisoners because if it's Ramadan, they were able to read the Tarawi there and things. So I guess the bottom line, Shabbat, is adjustment, right? Now, adjustment is not an easy thing. Again, you know, we're calling for patience, we're calling for the person to understand the circumstances that he's going to be put into. Removing a person's freedom is a great assault on the dignity of a person and your personal life. So, just one second, please, Shafan. Yeah, our Ashraf Isop has, uh, he is uh, very busy indeed uh, once we on it. And you know, what a brilliant point they indeed are uh, talking about incarceration. And uh, what, uh, even in a holding cell, you get this uh, fear factor. I mean, where you get this uh, humiliation, your wife is there, perhaps uh, your, you know, your son is there or your eldest uh, children are there. And this is what they're looking at. They're looking at an individual, uh, their own father who they look up to as, uh, you know, the, the shepherd of the flock being humiliated. Ashraf, are you back? I'm, I'm back, yeah. Okay, and, uh, and, uh, you know, go, you're talking about... Go ahead. You know, the impact on the family and the personal insult. Obviously, it's extremely stressful. I remember the one matter where the mother would come almost, you know, every month to us to say, please apply for parole, please apply for this, please apply for that. So the families left out here quite devastated. They're dealing with the loss of the breadwinner and they're trying to keep the family home together and they're vulnerable to criminals and other, you know, unsavory things in the community. People might want to take advantage over them. Anyway, obviously the impact is quite quite something now sayyidna musa uh, sayyidna yusuf alayhisalam's imprisonment um was again he understood it was by the decree of allah right because his entire journey um was by the decree of allah but mm. there is the example of the father sayyidna yaqub saying <clears throat> was sabran jamil you know, this is a great line in uh, Surah Yusuf uh, when they said to him, you see, your son was eaten up by a wolf and we were okay. We were good people. And he said, and Jamil. And then he wept so much that he became blind. But now imagine all those years later, he smelt the shirt of uh, Sayyidina Yusuf and he rubbed it over his eyes and his cataracts disappeared. Uh, quite amazing. So, so there, there is a good example of suffering loss and separation for both father and son. And then in the end, uh, Sayyidina Yusuf not abusing his very powerful position of being a minister of agriculture in the court of Firon or the king, whoever it was. So anyway, again, yes, it is a loss of liberty, tremendous stress. And uh, the outcomes are not often uh, very good. But on the other hand, you know, this week, um, the ex-president Zuma was now ordered back mm. to court uh, because uh, there was a successful review of the commissioner of uh, correctional services and his um, decision to grant early parole based on medical grounds. And that was, was set aside. And I think the... The decision is to send um, President Zuma back to escort correctional services, facilities, albeit that there's a hospital wing attached to it. So there you have it. There's, you see the, the legal approach today, but the condition of human beings haven't changed. It is the same. You have to deal with prison. Nobody wants to go to prison. Ashraf, also think about uh, the uh, Yanus Valus thing. I mean, he's got a uh, parole and uh, uh, imminent. I mean, th- he must be released within the next 10 days. Uh, and uh, there's a hue and cry about that. Uh, what's your thoughts? My thoughts as a lawyer was the judgment of the Constitutional Court was absolutely correct. So there's the divide between the political fallout and the impact of the assassination. And then the quest for Yanus Valus to obtain parole in a legal manner. The parole was um, was denied on many, many occasions. Um, but in the court, of, in the end, the, the Constitutional Court found that all persons are treated equally. 
irrespective. And, and they did say this was a terrible crime. It would have plunged the country into a civil war. It could have. It, there was a great loss of leadership. And this was a, per, a well-planned, perpetrated um, execution. And, and I mean, for all the horror that goes with it, it the, the, the courts didn't justify that. However, they, they applied their mind to, to the legal principles involved, which is that you are eligible for parole after at least one quarter of the sentence, which is, which is the debate now in the Zuma matter, because he didn't serve one quarter. So that was the other problem. So, so then, um, you know, all of the time that the minister opposed the, uh, the granting of uh, parole to Janusz Walusz was basically on the, on, the, on the basis that they couldn't let a known assassin escape and they wanted to take the full, you know, full amount of uh, satisfaction they could get from a very, very long prison sentence that he could have actually died in prison. But the courts were absolutely correct. And it, it was a unanimous judgment by uh, Justice Zondo in the Constitutional Court, as difficult as it is, as upsetting as it is to members of the family and the public that look, how can a pr- criminal walk? But you know, Shabbat, there's only one law for everyone. You know, this is not a law made for specific individuals, not tailor made for you or for me. Uh, it is a single law, and, and it has to be applied correctly and justly. And there the justices found that in terms of administrative law, the reasoning of the minister was irrational um, and therefore unlawful and therefore unconstitutional, which is, you know, you're, you're guaranteed in the Constitution your right to fair administrative action that must be lawful, procedurally fair, and um, uh, and uh, and it must meet the m- basic minimum requirements of administrative justice. But there you have two contrasting cases, basically dealing with parole. But in the end, I think the Constitutional Court was absolutely spot on in interpreting the law. So judges don't make law, Shafat. You know, this is a well-known thing. They don't make law; they apply the law. So the Constitution is there, and as are other instruments, such as uh, Administrative Justice Act, and they have to apply that consistently, fairly, without fear or favor. Those are the standards that one is expecting of the judiciary. So that's my comment on uh, on that particular matter. No, absolutely, and there's so much we don't know about what happened and you know Janusz Valus is not telling us much and there's uh, a lot of speculation around that uh, killing of uh, Krishani but uh, you know the liberation movements are not happy and so forth but we leave it at that uh, but uh, you know you look at uh, Jacob Zuma and uh, you know when he was incarcerated for the first time you saw what happened we had this uh, July unrest and so forth but now I, I'm thinking aloud Ashraf uh, can uh, Sunil Ramaphosa our president jump in and say, yes, I give him a, pres- a presidential pardon or so forth. Can that be done? Of course, the prisoner has to apply for a pardon. I mean, it's not of the president's own voluntary action. I mean, he can't just step up and say, OK, I'm pardoning. So it's possible that um, an application can be made to him. But for now, as we can see, whether it's a public protector or anyone else, the playing fields appear to be the legal terrain. There's lots of litigation. I mean, every single day you see something coming out of this or that court. Um, specific to whether presidential pardons are given or not, it's in the discretion of the president. So clearly, if the prisoner um, applies, uh, he will be entertained. I think the interesting thing was um, uh, both the, both the court, Supreme Court, as well as the Constitutional Court, said something very interesting about parole and conversion of prison sentences. So parole is is a privilege; it's not a right. You know, you you can't demand parole. It is a privilege, and parole is really, Shavad, in its real sense, it's not that you're getting time off. It is a continuation of your prison sentence. 
Now people would say, yeah, but there's certain personalities in Durban that got parole and they were on death's door, and, but they're playing golf every day and, you know, that, that was an abuse of the system. <laughs> it could be, maybe, we don't know, but the parole board exercised its discretion at that time based on medical evidence available at that time. Now, what can't be, in my view, is that you're given parole and then, um, you know, it, you then you send back to prison. Unless there was something really defective in how parole was granted. So in President Zuma's case, I think the criticism against the commissioner was he ignored 99.9% of the recommendations and he went on 1% and he said, I am exercising my discretion accordingly. Now, even that exercising of discretion, this is the interesting thing in law. It has to be reasonable. It has to be unbiased. It has to take into account relevant um, uh, considerations. It must not be at the behest of the dictates of another. It must be rational uh, and it must not be unconstitutional. So these are some of the areas that they actually look at administrative decisions and justify or overrule such a decision. But I think we got a very interesting case coming up, Shavat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it will be something that we'll be listening to. And, you know, perhaps a DA, I think, uh, you know, they are one uh, pressing for a lot of things. They want uh, uh, Jay-Z to be incarcerated. But uh, hopefully, you know, let the old man him to pasture. I mean, he's old enough now. Maybe leave him in Inkanjla and hopefully it'll be nothing. But uh, his daughter's tweeting many things that, that are coming through. But uh, then we look around us, Ashraf, in the world of uh, you know, racism. We find that uh, people uh, when there is, this is I'm, I'm calling this selective racism and it's a legal recourse. I mean, you look at what's happening in uh, the world of Qatar now with that World Cup taking place and with the um, uh, the, the, the behavior of uh, Britishers and the Western countries in general uh, acting so violently against uh, a, a Muslim country, number one. Number two, if you watch the uh, social media and you watch some of the uh, right-wing groups in India literally blowing the, the gaskets for uh, Zakir Naik uh, coming into Qatar and uh, being part of the opening ceremony and so forth, uh, this type of racism and, uh, you know, what type of... Uh, Justice do you get if you bring these people to court or if you take, uh, I mean, in, in, in Qatar, you know uh, uh, what the laws are. I mean, they, they're applying it very strictly. But in their own country, they are, you know, perhaps the Constitution or they had this, uh, the, the Bible as part of uh, the, 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 the law system being violated so heavily that they are acquiescing, uh, acquiescing in, 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 in silence uh, and uh, allowing this to happen. Uh, Ashraf, I hope you got my gist there. Your comments? My comment is I'm watching the events in Qatar with a heavy heart because I looked at the amount of money that was spent, $222 billion. Now, given the history of how the World Cup operates, uh, especially uh, in, in, its, in its wake, you can take any example from any country. Once the, the, the deal is done and they leave, well, the country then bears the, the bill, you know, foots the bill and has these huge structures that are often not used effectively. So my question then is, you see, there's no such thing as a Muslim country, Shabbat. These are all little tribes that were mm. given preference over a particular area. At the end of the Ottoman period, when the Muslim lands were divided, they were all done uh, with a crayon that Churchill held in a little office in England. And so he cut away Kuwait from Iraq. You know, um, Jordan was uh, split. So so all, all of these little, little nation states, okay, with their little emirates or little sheikhs or whatever, sit on huge resources. Some would say that is a wasteful expenditure. Um, you know, others would say that, no, we must move into the, the new centuries with vigor. Um, 
in Saudi, they now they planning a huge city in the desert that will accommodate about nine million people. With, it's in a glass building. I mean, when you look at infrastructure development like that, um, you know, you you have to you have to ask yourself where does the benefit lie, you know. So for me, the simple simple equation is that if you had that amount of resources and if there was zakat which is a pillar of islam in place properly then the the income from from such huge resources of oil could have solved every problem of poverty and debt as it exists today in each part of the world where Muslims are. That for me is the dynamic that um, that was interesting and not so much, you know, the World Cup because the World Cup really, what, what does it comprise of? A number of games will be played and then you get to the final, but the broadcast rights, the food rights, the advertising rights, I mean, even, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, alcoholic companies like Budweiser, they, they now has to, they have to switch to selling non-alcoholic uh, wines and beers and things or whatever they sell. My point is, Shabbat, that it is an industry, it's a private industry, it makes a lot of money. The host nation spends a lot of money. But what do you get out of it? In, in Qatari's case, what they got was criticism. They got people digging into um, the history of the workers. Yes, they were exploited. They lived under terrible conditions and they did that. So nobody actually goes to, uh, this is not to justify any harm caused to the workers there. But the workers, poor people, don't have recourse. They don't know where to go. If they don't exploit, if they're not exploited in this manner, they can't send money home. Sri Lanka, Shafat, is in a, Absolute doldrums, it's bankrupt. One third of its income was from its workers abroad. I mean, that is, and, and most of them were in uh, Muslim countries, in Arab countries. So the poor nations had to sell their labor. The rich nations took the labor. America was founded on the slave trade. I mean, the slaves worked the cotton fields and all these big industries. The slaves were taken forcibly from Africa. Uh, a lot of the uh, uh, you know, they, take take our own explanation in Durban or, or experience. Uh, the big owners of uh, sugar, the British companies, they had to import labor from India. And the labor was brought at a very, you know, I mean, at a ridiculously low price. They, they were exploited. And when they were done, they were either asked to leave or to stay on very, very unfavorable terms. And the British themselves had perpetrated apartheid way back in the 1800s. So you can see the world is not just. Um, whether it is racism or whether it is, you know, uh, lack of resources or whatever the case is, look, there's a conflict now between Russia and uh, Ukraine. There's no racism involved there. But no doubt the Ukrainian refugee is given because he's white, better treatment and better accommodation in the countries that will take them in. So again, there are thousands of people dying at sea in North Africa, but they're not given the same kind of uh, attention as the Ukrainian refugee. Now, that again is, is, is a basis, you would say, of racism, that the whiter you are and the more you're suffering, the more welcome you'd be in all countries in the world and uh, without question given your rights. So it cuts deep when you talk of racism in that way. And indeed, it is upsetting. I mean, when you also see that the resources of every natural native of his country, be it the Aborigine down under the Red Indian in uh, America, or indeed, um, the local African population, they've been denuded 
of their resources. They've been robbed of it. Some through complicit activities of their own um, people and others through, I would say, battle of a gun, because that um, the might is right, you see. And, and then you're able to subjugate uh, the population. So there are overtones of ro racism there as well. Again, it comes down to black and brown. So there's no doubt about it. There is racist around the world, and it could be even in governments, uh, where uh, obviously you, we experienced it, where uh, racism was legislated into the law books, and it, it uh, ran for a number of years. So these are mechanisms of control of ordinary people. But it's interesting when you look at Islam, because Allah does not talk of a race. Allah says, I've created you, mankind, into tribes and nations so that you may learn from one another. There's a hadith that says that you must obey the Amir or the one in command, even if he has hair like the kernel of a popcorn. Obviously, it means a per person that is black. And then, of course, the final sermon, which is the first universal declaration for all human beings, made it clear that there is no superiority between Arab and non-Arab, between black and white. I mean, can you imagine this was decreed 1441 years ago or 45 years ago, and it still resonates to this day. So we have to move away uh, because Allah also says in the Quran, then take the color of Allah because Allah's color is the best of color. Now, well, Allah is the creator of every human being. So which color is Allah? Allah is all of these colors. So it is a guidance for us not to be discriminatory on the basis of race. Shafat? Now, you, you, again, you know, you bring me back into uh, uh, the judiciary. I mean, uh, our judiciary was uh, compromised uh, during the time of apartheid, where, you know, we're looking at the inquisition of uh, our late Imam Harun's, uh, you know, the case, and they're going to look into that. And you could see the blatant lies uh, that were spoken uh, by the government, uh, spoken by the pathologists, spoken by the judges and so forth. And, you know, and they swore by the Bible and they ran everything according to, you know, the Christian law and so forth. And these were, you know, Calvinists. These were like upright uh, Christians or for the NG care. How did they lie so blatantly, uh, Ashraf? And, uh, you know, talk to us about Imam Harun's uh, case uh, that he's uh, presently being played in front of us. So how did they lie, Shafat? Very simple. They justified every finding of theirs, either in the law or in the Bible. Some of them were even convinced that that was the correct position. So they were not even lying. They were actually living out their convictions, um, saying things like, um, I mean, the black man is the, is the creation of, uh, of the devil. And they take their, uh, some, of their, um, some of their evidence from the old, uh, from the old scriptures. So you can find justification for anything. With regard to Imam Harun, uh, Rahimullah, so the position is that the families now, as they did with the um, inquests of Ahmad Timol here in Johannesburg, where João Rodriguez was now found to have been uh, complicit in his death and the reopening of all of these cases. The reopening is to get closure. Uh, I think it's difficult to, to relive these things and, uh, you know, find some redress because even the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had all of these uh, opportunities for people to come forward and confess. But, you know, even that it turned out to be unsatisfactory to many people in the end because they said there was no real conviction. There was no action by the NPA against these perpetrators. And the matter is ongoing. So I hope whatever it is that the family seeks, that they get through the um, inquest into Imam Abdullah Harun. And uh, it doesn't really change anything. If anything, yes, they would, they would know for certain what they always suspected, that he was murdered and it was not accidental. But, um, you know, the family will tell you that they want uh, the details of this. And that is a wish that one must respect. But, Shavad, I think we're missing a very important topic.
And that was the question of the azan. I don't know if you want to cover yeah, that. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely, because I do live in this town. And you won't believe it in uh, in Isapingo Beach. I do live in Isapingo Beach. And I get the both sides. Uh, I even know the individual that complain. And, you know, uh, the, uh, my, the, the Uluma have uh, very close friends there. Uh, Hafiz Ismail Saliji is the, 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 uh, the brother of the Mufti of the Talimuddin. And I think uh, yeah, that's very important because there's a huge uh, celebration and uh, there was this composite doing its uh, round in social media and, you know, celebrating a victory for Muslims. And I think it's quite important uh, that you address that issue, Ashraf. So we start by uh, looking at the Supreme Court of Appeals decision in the case, which was handed down yesterday, the 24th of November. And the citation was Madrasa Talimuddin Islamic Institute versus Chandra Giri Eluri and Etequini Municipality. There are two respondents here. Um, it was an interesting judgment. It was handed down by Dambuza, who is the acting deputy president of the court. And he had Judge Corvin Hughes, Busi, and Dafu, who's an acting judge, um, on him, with him on the bench. It was heard on the 19th of September, 2022. And it's very good the judgment comes out in by the 24th of November 2022. Let's start with the summary, you know. What the case went about was really what the complainant, Mr. Ellery, was saying was amounted to nuisance. And he said that the nuisance is as a result of the five times azan, um, you know, coming from a property that was about 200 meters away from him, obviously referring to the madrasa. But the judges, you know, restated the law very admirably. I mean, it's very clear. But let, let's just talk about general law first. So the right to undisturbed use and enjoyment of one's property is not unlimited. You can expect reasonable interference, right? And depending on the circumstances in a specific neighborhood, the oversensitivity or the personal particularities uh, of a person doesn't serve as a standard for what is reasonable. So reasonableness is actually an objective quality. And the question is whether the interfering conduct, in this case the azan, was constitutionally guaranteed and is a relevant consideration. So very important for us to understand what the court said here, right? It said that when does a noise emanating from a property become actionable in law? And it gave the history of what had happened in the past. Mr. Ellery's um, uh, demand is <laughs> quite interesting because he said, he said a few things. He says he wanted, number one, the court to order the call of uh, the azan right, should not be heard on his property. In the second order, he saw that the madrasa must cease its operations and it might be, it must be divested of the property and sold to a state organ or, look what he said, a non-Muslim South African NGO or NPO or a PBO. So he's making it very clear it can't be a Muslim thing. Now, the High Court only granted the interdict in relation to the, uh, the Azan. And at that time, it said it must not be audible within the building on Mr. Ellery's property. Obviously, we know the Madrasa uh, appealed this uh, ruling, and it went to, all the way to the Constitutional Court. Mr. Ellery in the Constitutional Court, uh, sorry, Supreme Court of Appeals, uh, had represented himself. But he also said that, look, there are 340 students living there in the Madrasa property. And he said that it's quite interesting that some other, other stuff came out here. He said that, uh, they, you know, he, he's basically anti-Islamic, okay? He's, he was abhorrent to the uh, Muslim Islamic uh, religion, okay? He wanted 
the madrasa to be evicted and its immobile property to be confiscated. And the judges were so taken aback, they didn't want to really repeat in the Supreme Court of Appeals all of his personal nuances. It says so in paragraph 3. None of these reasons are repeated in this judgment as no useful purpose will be served by doing so. It says, as result, as relevance to the noise claim, he says the Azan invaded his personal space and it happens at an unearthly time starting at 3.30 in the summer. And then his other complaint was quite interesting. He says, you see this distinctly Muslim atmosphere to the area is given. And he found that uh, to be repugnant. He lamented the growth of the Muslim community there in your neighborhood in Spingo Beach, Shafat, over 15 years. And he says, you guys, as a result, are dominating the town. And here's another charge he puts forward. This is Muslim people had become arrogant. He then takes a swipe at Islam. He says, promotes racism, bigotry, and sexism, and pays no regard to the Constitution. Now he took a swipe at the Constitution. He says, it's afforded protection to all religions. And he blamed the Constitution for that. And he maintained in relation to Islam, that protection was undeserved and must have been extended only as a result of the unawareness of the inequities ingrained therein. And it's quite, quite serious what he says, right? Now, the parties were trying to resolve this since 2003. They took it to the Itikwini municipality and South African human rights considerations. He also complained that the buildings were not approved and the court granted the court ACO. And when you say ACO, it means a court of first instance in this court, in this case, the high court. And it said, you see, the, the freedom of religion, it said, was not guaranteed of the practice or manifestation of the religion. And the madrasa had to then prove, according to the court ACO, that the Azan was an essential practice of its religion. And all that Mr. Lurie, uh, Ellery had to prove was an, an interference of his private space. But there the Constitutional Court, uh, sorry, the Supreme Court of Appeal said they don't agree. They restated the law in paragraph 7. It says, look, this is the law now. While everyone has undisturbed use and enjoyment of their property, that right is not limited. A limited interference with property rights, right, must be accepted and is expected and acceptable in law. It said mutual tolerance is a legal uh, yardstick of reasonableness. Now, I don't know if you remember, but in mixed neighborhoods that we grew up in the township, Speed, Lodium, Azadbal, etc., there were always churches on a Sunday and they would ring their bell and over Christmas. And I know particularly in Lodium now, there's a mandir that plays on a loudspeaker, uh, whatever religious music there is, quite a few times a day. Um, so there's tolerance there, right? And it referred to a very early case of Holland versus Scott, very, very early case, where the court stressed the contextual nature of the test of reasonableness, of interference from a neighbor, neighboring property was the following. It says for an action to be nuisance, it had to seriously and materially interfere with the plaintiff's ordinary comfort and existence. And this is what the court, Supreme Court applied, says this remains the test to date. So it was quite interesting that they took a very old, well-based precedent. You know, the law operates on precedents. And so it applied that here. Interesting, it said that there had to be a number of factors that they take into account to understand whether the threshold had been breached. One was the seriousness of the interference. 
the time and duration, the possibility of avoiding the harm, and the applicant sensitivity there too. Very interesting that they looked at the applicant's own sensitivity. And it looked at an American case, right? Which is the Shamani versus Daystar Hatchery. And the court said, no, sorry, in, sorry, uh, Roger versus Elliot, not, not, uh, so the test was ob obviously objective. It couldn't be subjective. And it's based on the so-called reasonable man test, which is a man that he, he's a fictitious character, but he's neither, you know, uh, I remember Justice Holmes saying when we were still learning law, he's the ordinary man on the bus every day. You know, he doesn't have to have Solomonic wisdom, um, employ chamele chameleonic caution, or have the train reflexes of a racing driver. You know, you could, he wasn't looking for the superman. Um, and he said that ordinary man, you know, if he finds that it's, the thing is intolerable, that will be a serious impediment to the reasonable enjoyment of his property. Now, in the Ellery case, we know that even the local non-Muslim population came out to defend the Azan. And, uh, you know, they said, look, we are ordinary people here also. We are also uh, subject to the same azan, but the way that the LRE complained about it was not correct and that they sided with the Muslims. But in this case, they went to Rogers versus Elliot. The Massachusetts Supreme Court considered whether a, the church was liable for damages suffered from, by the plaintiff as a result of noise caused by the repeated ringing of church bells in a Roman Catholic church located opposite his house. Now, this particular plaintiff was very, very sensitive. He was suffering from sunstroke. He had violent convulsions of each of the occasions, eight occasions, the church bells were rung, and he tried to sue for damages. Um, the court there said something interesting. It says. You see, in an action of this kind, the fundamental question the court asked, by what standard and against what interests of the neighbor is one rights to use your own property to be measured? And in connection with the importance of the business from which it proceeds, obviously that was the church, in our case it's a mosque, there must be a determination by the effect of the noise upon gen people generally and not upon those who were particularly susceptible to it or others who by long experience have learned to enjoy it with inconvenience not upon those with strong nerves and robust health to enable them to endure the great disturbance without suffering or nor those whose mental or physical condition make them painfully sensitive to everything about them. So you can see there, right? There they're speaking of the reasonable man. So it's not your particular uh, sensitivity to a particular sound that allows you to get relief. So I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, to, you know, from, from a legal perspective and the test employed by the courts. You see, yeah, I, although Ellery, sorry, uh, Shabbat. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you? absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying you. You got me like uh, enthralled and I'm just enjoying you, Ashraf. Go ahead. Well, no, I'm, I'm glad because, you know, I'm trying to make this simple for our listeners so they understand the basic principles of nuisance of property and when you can interdict that nuisance how sensitive you must be to to the, or, or how tolerant you must be. Now, in Ellery's case, right, why he failed, he said, uh, he didn't explain the exact nature and the level of noise or how long it lasted. He gave no evidence of what a reasonable azan would be in the circumstances. And he, he really, he was covering out his profound dislike of Islam. And he said that he would rather have the Azan ban from Ispingo Beach altogether. 
just to harken back to Qatar, I don't know if I read this in correct or not, but they banned all the other Mozins and they put new Mozins into place with <laughs> melodious renditions <laughs> yes. of, of the yeah. Azan. No, no doubt the Azan has a positive impact on people. You can see it on uh, YouTube and things. Where little children that were exposed to it um, found it beautiful. People that were traveling in Muslim countries that hadn't heard the Azan before found it beautiful. Some of them had accepted Islam on that. So you can see, apart from a mere call to prayer, it does render something in the heart. It does, it does reawaken the contract, the primal contract between Allah and all of creation. When we were gathered together before on one plane and all our souls were asked, Am I not your Lord? Mm. And we all announced in unison, every soul testified to the truth of that. And you know, Shabbat, that DNA is, is trapped in the heart. So when you do have an occasion to listen to it, it awakens the original contract of Allah. So maybe this is what uh, uh, you know, the effect of the Azan is there. But Ellery, he, he took exception to this, you know. He said, look, man, the Muslims are elevating themselves over other religions. And, um, you know, he denigrated the Quran. <laughs> he referred to Azan as a foreign sound invading the public and private space. And that it bears down. And he has no control. It robs him of of his quiet enjoyment of his property. These are all quotations by the in the judgment, eh? And um, uh, he said that he researched this, and he resolved to approach the court for an interdict. So you can see he was determined to. Uh, I mean, the thing goes back to 2003. In 2022, it still wasn't resolved. Apart from the judgment that said, look. Mr. Ellery, you wanted to come to court. We tested your uh, claims and we find against you. He failed to provide evidence of an unreasonable interference. And he placed himself within the realm of especially an extra, extraordinarily sensitive complainant. Remember the earlier case we discussed in America? That guy was sensitive and he was allergic to the sounding of the bells because he had sunstroke and and the court there said, no, man, you, you know what? You can't be judged by your own preferences. You have to be judged by ordinary, reasonable preferences. Um, and then um, it says there was a lack of evidence. Now, it also said something very interesting. It says, you see, while the Constitution says that everyone has a right to freedom of conscience, religion, thought, belief, and opinion, and religious observations may be conducted at state institutions. The Constitution does not provide protection for different religious beliefs and affiliation. This is very important, Shabbat. While it guarantees the freedom to observe your religious belief, it does not provide protection. I mean, I think that's very, very interesting. And it says that for the effective practice of religious freedom, it had to have a standard of what is equitable to different religions. But it didn't leave that to the courts. It says we're leaving it to the public authorities to regulate such practices. So you could have another challenge somewhere else to the Azan, and, and um, it's not necessarily that this case will bind uh, that particular uh, judgment in the future. It is specific to this case. However, the Constitution does prohibit discrimination on the basis of religion. Now, you know, there's been a number of rezoning issues with the, court, uh, with the mosques, and there the courts have said now, we can't discriminate against a mosque when there are churches and synagogues in the same vicinity. So that was very interesting, you see, uh, from that perspective.
But I think the point I'm making is the Constitution doesn't provide any guarantee for religious practices. It, it um, looks at a very important case of Christian education versus the Minister of Education. Now, remember there that that uh, case dealt with the right to, ins- uh, to inflict corporal punishment, which is from the Bible. So the Christian Education in South Africa said that they wanted to uh, make sure that they could still inflict corporal punishment. And the, um, the court said no. Is this because the essence of the concept of freedom of religion is the right to entertain such religious belief as a person chooses, the right to declare your religious belief openly without fear of hindrance or reprisal and the right to manifest religious belief by worship and practice. Now, I must tell you, Shabbat, just as a side note, this includes the Satanists that say they have a religion and they worshiping their own whatever, and they can do that without fear or hindrance or reprisal. Quite interesting. I think the bottom line is you may sacrifice a sheep, but you can't sacrifice a human. That is the limit of your religious freedom, right? So, it also spoke of uh, another case, Prince versus Law Society of Good Hope. You remember there, Prince was a Rastafarian, and he wanted to exercise his uh, rights to openly manifest his religion. Um, and, uh, you know, whether the smoking of uh, uh, ganja and wearing of drag lots form part of the religious ceremony. Now, The court found favor with the madrasa, saying that the reasonable assessment had to take into account the balance that the countervailing constitutional rights offer. And there was no room to entertain Ellery's convictions. Having all, the court then said, having regard to all of these factors, uh, the uh, appeal must succeed. Then it spoke about costs and it gave the BioWatch principle. Um, the application was dismissed with costs of two counsel. The counsel acting on behalf of the Madresa was Rafik Bana, senior counsel, and an R. Itzkin, instructing attorneys were Abba Parak in Johannesburg and Weber's in Bloemfontein. And Mr. Ellery appeared in prison, uh, in person, not prison. Quick correction. Hmm. So, Jabba, that is the gist of the um, of 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 the judgment. I think it is a welcome judgment. It is very clear that you have the freedom of religion, but your freedom is tempered by what is reasonable, and what is reasonable is the reasonable convictions of the community. And apart, if you exclude the Muslims in Ispingo Beach, then you could see maybe one man out of, I don't know how many thousand people are there. He's the only one that was suffocated by the uh, Azan. Uh, but obviously, the judgment was, was very clear that he couldn't produce the evidence. And the reasonable man test was employed and the general application that you can't be complaining of your particular discomfort it must be a discomfort that is general. So I, I don't know how much time we have, but I hope that gives us an understanding of what happened in court. I tell you, Ashraf, you were so eloquent and so brilliant with the whole thing. And I, I, let, let me compliment you here. You know, it, it's not only that uh, you, you, know, you know your profession well and uh, the way you uh, deliver. It is your media expertise uh, that comes to the fore. You know, the way you delivered it. And then generally, you know, uh, people they lose interest, but I was transfixed, and I enjoyed every um, every word that you spoke. And you know, it was like a, a lesson for me. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we 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 gone to one hour already, so it's time for us to round up. And uh, once again, you know, I embrace you, I celebrate you, I congratulate you in the manner that you presented uh, this evening's uh, show. And it was your show, uh, Ashraf, and uh, your parting words. Well, once again, thank you to you, uh, your station, the people that make all this possible, as well as our listenership, to allow us an opportunity to try and serve and spread some of the little knowledge that we have. Always remember, make dua for the Ummah.
for everyone else. Keep up the Yasin. Oh, by the way, I hope you found your name in the Yasin, Shafat. Yes. It is there. Shafat, um, so, yes. Yeah, it is there. And uh, yeah, make dua for everyone and, uh, you know, keep well and Allah bless everyone and all of you. Allah bless you, Ashraf, and inshallah, you have a beautiful and wonderful uh, evening ahead. Talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, our time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and we will continue after that.